0: Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Dei Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible-teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Today we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 50, and this is a psalm written by a man named Asaph, if you look at your superscriptions. Now, we don't know a ton about this man from Scripture, but what we do know from the book of Chronicles is that he is one of the Levite priests that David had assigned to his duties. He was to lead the Israelites in song and worship in particular. Now, from the content of his psalms, which he has actually numerous psalms ascribed to him, he's an incredibly godly man. He was passionate about seeing God rightly praised. And in every one of his psalms, he deals with this topic in uh, particular. It was his focus, in other words, that the people of God would worship his God properly or their God properly. What's even more interesting, though, is that in every single one of his psalms, he deals with the theme of judgment in some way, shape, or form. He speaks to it in some capacity, especially about God's wrath, and yet he never fails to lift up man's responsibility in light of that truth. And that is essentially the thrust of our psalm today. Asaph looks out among the people, the worshipers of Israel, and he sees that they are guilty of false worship. They are dutifully offering their sacrifices to God, and yet they do so improperly, and they do so with a heart of hypocrisy. So what he does is offer a much-needed correction to the people of his own day, and yet this psalm speaks to us in a vitally important way, and we must consider its words and its warnings. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, ultimately, we are a people who are to be concerned about worship, about proper worship of our God. You and I must consider if our worship is correct, we must ask If it is what God desires and demands of us in his word, we must be able to see that within a church we go to or a church we visit, within our homes, within our personal lives, that we reflect a heart of proper worship to our triune Lord. And the reason for this is quite simple. The reality is that we are all prone to what this psalm would call a half-hearted devotion to our God. We are men and women that often think trite thoughts of God and his holiness, especially. And the simple reason for this is that we are not captivated with a vision of who God truly is. But we are also not aware of who we are in light of who God is, and therefore how we must live in light of these realities. This psalm is a warning. Make no mistakes about it. It's a rebuke about how all of us, myself included, can fall into the trap of improper worship of the God who is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. But it is a warning given to two different types of people. You have one person who has fallen into this sense of complacency, if you will. They've ultimately fooled themselves into believing that God is somehow in need of them. And then you have the flagrant hypocrite, the one who speaks with much eloquence on the virtues of God and his word, And yet, ultimately, he profanes God's grace. Both of these people, though they've earned every bit of a scathing indictment and rebuke, are urged to repent. They're urged to draw near to God rather than double down in their false worship. And so what I want to be able to do today is simply show you just that, how you and I can be prone to this improper worship, and yet how God is still ever so lovingly and gracefully calling us always and evermore to repentance but that how Scripture ultimately shows us how we must approach God. Asaph reveals for us what I would say are four characteristics, then, of genuine worship. And so the question is, if we want to praise God rightly, if we are to praise God rightly, how do we do this? Well, he reveals it to us here that as a church, as a family, as an individual, we must affirm or accept certain realities that simply are truth. And then we must act on these truths. So first, Asaph shows us that we must recognize God is the righteous judge of all the earth. Secondly, he reveals that we must acknowledge our total or complete dependence on him. Thirdly, we must live with complete devotion to God and his word. And then fourth and finally, he shows that we must persevere in this reality. We must persevere, in other words, on the path of salvation. And we must do so with an undivided focus. So look with me now to verse 1, and I'm going to simply start to unfold this reality. And remember, the first characteristic of pure worship we're going to see here is that God is the righteous judge of all the earth. This is a reality that we must affirm. So this psalm begins with a rather incredible display of God and his power and might and authority, and it's designed to simply see God as he truly is. It immediately brings us into a courtroom, if you will. God is about to render his verdict upon a guilty people, but notice the descriptions that are given of God in verses one through three here. If you look down at your text, you can see this quite plainly. In verse one, it says, he is the Lord God Almighty, that is the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-glorious one who enters into the judge's chambers, and he is the righteous judge of all the earth because he is the one true God. He is Yahweh himself. The psalmist likewise tells us that this Lord of glory, this righteous judge has spoken. And what he has spoken here is a summons ultimately to judgment. He has summoned all of the earth, if you see, from the rising of the sun to its setting, from the east to the west to be character witnesses. They are going to stand and witness against Israel in her trial. But notice the descriptions don't stop here. In verse two, it describes that he has this radiating perfection of glory and beauty, that he is the perfection of, of beauty in and of himself. He shines forth from Zion. And Zion, of course, refers to that place in Israel where God dwells among his people. He's making himself known not only to Israel, but in this case, he's making himself known to all the earth because the perfection of his glory simply radiates from his presence. So what's the anticipation here? Well, the anticipation building reality, is that God, in all his glory and zeal and might and splendor, is simply radiating his holiness from the center of Jerusalem. He is about to make himself known as this righteous judge from his holy mountain. The full blazing glory of God is seen as emanating from his being, meaning that it is just simply flowing and flowing outward. All the people are simply overwhelmed by the sheer presence of this God who is justice itself. Now think of this in light of Moses, right? Moses asks to see the glory of God and what happens to him. The Lord hides him behind the cleft of the rock because if he sees his glory in full, he will simply die. The reality is that in this, there is this uncontained vision of God's glory, where the glory is just simply from the tabernacle emanating from his presence out into all of creation that all will look upon it and see he is this God who is just. It's spilling over every nook and cranny of creation, showing that when God desires to speak, to express his holiness, to express it in judgment, it is the purest and most complete form of beauty. And we just simply don't think of the glory of God in this capacity, though, do we? It is a terrifying reality. It's a terrifying beauty, but it is also a wonderful thing. It is a beauty that overwhelms the senses. It undoes the one who sees it. But notice our psalmist here is just showing that it is bubbling with his wrath in verse 3. Look down with me. He says, May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him, and it is very tempestuous around him. The very nature of this God who is just is that when he expresses his justice in its pureness and its beauty, it is a consuming fire. It's a consuming fire. The very idea is that in the wake of God's holiness, his utter hatred of sin, in other words, in the very presence of God and the perfection of his glory, nothing that is tainted can stand before it. It cuts to the very heart of mankind in his natural state, and it expresses itself in consuming wrath and judgment. Now here I mean the complete perfection of wrath. The complete perfection of wrath. Have you contemplated that reality? The blazing hot glory of a God who pierces through the veil of darkness with consuming fire. Everything in its wake is burned to rubble. Everything around it is surrounded by this storm. This perfect expression of a swirling wrath and fury that levels everything in its path. That's how Scripture simply describes God here, and it's incredible. You get this sense, this foreboding feeling of a calm before the storm, where the reality is that there is this peace, if you will, in the midst of the storm, and yet all around it is chaos, but it is a contained chaos. It is a pure expression of righteous judgment and wrath, where to us it's chaos, but to this God who is fury itself, it is perfectly controlled. Notice, though, that the psalmist is not in terror. Right, He's not fleeing from this God who is coming in his judgment and speaking to him. He's actually in awe. He's in awe over it. In one sense, he reveals that you should be afraid of this God, right? You are a mere mortal in front of this God who is a tempestuous, consuming fire. But in another sense, he shows that this blazing hot show of holiness is something that is utterly other, utterly wonderful, utterly beautiful, and that's the reality for those who trust in this one. He may be a consuming fire, but it is a good consuming fire. There's simply no other way to describe it. The God who comes in his awesome glory here with the storm clouds of wrath brewing all about him and the consuming fire of his fury building declares that sin simply must be purged from his people. And he's going to be purging it in one of two ways here. That's what he's coming for. They're either going to be turned, in other words, to genuine worship of the king who is the righteous judge, or they will be judged. They will be consumed. They will be judged fiercely. Either way, though, the expression of God's judgment is still good and beautiful. That's what he's describing here. And everything in creation just simply affirms this reality. There's no question about it. That's what he says here. From here on out, this is what we see in our psalm today. It's this call to repentance and proper worship of the God who is just simply because he is the righteous judge. And this is a reality that all of these first six verses are simply building towards. So look with me now at verses 4 through 6. 1 through 3 kind of informs the reality behind it, but then notice what he says in verse 4. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. Proclaims, gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare his righteousness. Why? For God himself is judge. Now the focus simply broadens. Everything that's going to be a witness to God's judgment is moving beyond humanity. It's moving now to this angelic realm. right? The angels will stand and confirm. Every living creature will confirm God in his justice here. That's what he's saying. But notice the object of who he will judge. This is Israel. This is his own people whom he calls his godly ones or his saints. These are the ones who will stand trial. The reality that Asaph emphatically proclaims here. Every bit of creation will stand in awe of God's righteous judgment. But that judgment will be on his own people and it will be declared just. It will be declared righteous, and good. The reason why is very, very simple. Verse 6 says, God is the judge. That's just what it proclaims. There's, There's no apologetic for it. There's no defense for it. It just simply says, God is the righteous judge. There will be none who stands to question the validity of this verdict. No one will complain that it is unfair, nor that it somehow doesn't conform to the standard, because God is the standard. That's the reality He's the standard by which his people are judged. No one's gonna get a free pass simply because they are his child, he says here. But the reality is that God is judge. In fact, they of all people should be the first ones to affirm that all of his decrees and actions and everything that he does are perfectly just and yet he is gonna be bringing them on trial. They don't affirm this reality, in other words. That's the implication here. Instead, what they do is they see this God improperly. They do not have a proper vision of their God. They do not see him as the righteous judge. But this is ultimately what they and what you and I must affirm if we're going to worship God properly. That's the foundation of it all, in other words. We must see God as this perfect embodiment of justice and righteousness, and therefore that we are to conform to his standard. He does not conform to us. The implication is we just don't see God this way. Naturally speaking, we see God very much so like you and I. But a res- the result of that is that we don't worship him as we should. Where you and I immediately go wrong is that we compare ourselves, we compare our actions to one another, uh, and comparatively, we're pretty good, aren't we? We have, in other words, what I would call created a false standard of righteous and justice be- because we don't compare ourselves ultimately to the God that is justice itself. We don't look at ourselves in light of the one who judges every intention and thought and even action that we make. And the reason that we don't do this is because we don't ultimately believe that he is the righteous judge. Now, this is the same problem that the psalmist identifies that these people fall into here. If you see it in verse 6, he says, literally, nothing in all of creation will dispute the charges laid out. The reason for this again, is because he's the judge. It's a wonderfully simple reality. Nothing, literally nothing, will deny that it is just. Why? Because God is the one who is deciding the verdict. He gets to to decide what's fair and right. He gets to determine whether or not you and I are in the wrong. And nothing will cry against it on that day. So what the Israelites ultimately failed to do is that they failed to honor the God who is Because they failed to see him as he truly is. They failed to see him as the one who judges all things. And all of it is because they did not see him as the complete perfection of what it means to be righteous. But first and foremost, they had an incorrect understanding of who God is, and everything else simply fell in line with that. And that ultimately is the problem that you and I have as well. Beloved, in every instance in which we sin, what happens is we fail to consider how God has revealed himself as the judge. We fail to consider that he has laid out a standard of what he desires of us in his word, and when we return, or refuse rather, to listen to wisdom, what we do is what we reflect what we believe about God. That's all that's being revealed every time that you and I go after sin, or that we reject wisdom. In essence, we We're showing what we worship or what we love. Now, God has revealed that he is the foundation of righteousness. He has revealed that he is the very definition of what is good and right. He has revealed that all of his ways are just. And yet, you and I make certain presumptions and assumptions each and every day about who this God is. And the result often is that we bring forth an improper worship of God. Now, we hear it all the time. You hear it in things like saying, my God is a God of love. He would never do fill in the blank. Or my God wants me to be happy. Right? He would never expect me to do that. For the people in our psalm today, what they believe is that ultimately God is in need of them. They also believe, though, they can treat sin flippantly. And so they become guilty of hypocrisy. They speak one way and do a completely different thing. But all of it stems from a false perception of who this God is. At the heart of improper worship of God is a false understanding of who God is. That is the simplest reality that we must affirm. He is righteous. Every bit of creation simply proclaims this reality. Every bit of creation on the day of judgment will stand and witness and affirm this reality. And we will either conform to that reality or we will not. But none of that will change who God is. God is always just and he will always be just. The only thing that will change is what we worship. If we want to worship the God that is and worship him properly, we must, in other words, see that he is the righteous judge and affirm that reality. But as we're going to see in our psalm today, we must also affirm it in the way we live. On that final day of judgment, there will be no excuses, no disagreements, no amount of skepticism that you and I can muster in which we will stand before the righteous judge and give an appeal. Ultimately, we have an obligation to worship God as he demands, and he will judge us all for how we worship him. We will never come to worship him properly if we do not accept him on his terms. That is the very first point. That's the foundation of proper worship. If we reject that, if we reject that he is the righteous judge, if we come up with our own standard, ultimately what's going to happen is that you place yourself as the judge, but in the end, you'll find that you were no judge at all. You were just simply a mere mortal man whom God will judge. But secondly, as our psalmist will reveal here, that if we want to worship God properly, we must acknowledge our total dependence on God in light of this reality. He is the perfect judge. You and I are not. And so in every way, shape, and form, we must cast ourselves upon him. Now look with me now at verses 7 through 15, and I want to start to unfold this reality as well for you. Notice he begins in verse 7 here. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings, they are continually before me. Now, notice what he does here. He, he gives them a command, first and foremost, to hear. Now, that command is not that they will simply hear him, but that they will ultimately answer for what he says, for their sin, in other words. In the midst of this, though, he reminds them they are yet his people, he is yet their God, and so everything is set in light of these covenant obligations they are to obey. The content of his rebuke will be for a violation of the covenant, but here it's not because they dutifully offer their sacrifices. In other words, externally, everything they did matched what they were supposed to be doing. They were making their offerings and sacrifices. They came before him dutifully obeying the letter of the law. There's no hint of them bringing the wrong kind of sacrifice or that their priests were coming improperly or that they used false priests. So again, externally, they would have appeared to do everything correctly. It would have been beautiful, pristine. Everyone would have seen it and thought, this is pure worship. Well, the question remains, what's the the problem then? Well, verses 9 through 13 give us our answer. So look with me now. He says, I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The kettle uh, the on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Now notice what he does here. What he's doing is he's rebuking them, right? Not because they made sacrifices, not because they made improper sacrifices at least on the externals, but that they made the right sacrifices ultimately in the wrong way. There's a series of things about their sacrifices that give us clues as to what this is. And so look with me again, as as you start to see it, it's very, very clear. You know, for one, the Lord declares that every single animal that they bring to him is already his, right? He makes that painfully clear in verse 12. He says, The world is mine and all that it contains. Literally every single thing in all of creation already belongs to God. And so evidently what they're doing is they're coming forth with their sacrifices without without that awareness, right? It tells you that they, they were bringing forth their sacrifices thinking that they were their own. They're not aware of the fact that what they're going to offer God, in other words, is actually already his. But it's a bit more nefarious than this. Notice what he says here, right? They've completely forgotten the purpose of these sacrifices. In verses 12 through 13, he he hits it hard. They've come to offer God sacrifices, and they believe that through these that he is in need, right? That he is going to feed off of them, that he's going to be just like any one of the other pagan gods. So he answers this with a not-so-subtle rebuke in verse 12. He says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't even tell you. Right? But then he continues in 13 to put this to rest. He says, Shall I eat the blood of male goats? Shall I eat the flesh of bulls? That's just another way of saying, Look, if I grew hungry, I would take whatever it is that I wanted. It's all mine, in other words. I don't need you. But secondly, I don't grow hungry. I am not like you. I am not like any other God. At the heart of this rebuke is that they've, they've come before their God to make offerings and sacrifices just like they would any other pagan God. Now, we're going to see this come up again in verse 21, but I want you to understand really how offensive this truly is to, to God. Right? Any other pagan deity, no matter how you stretch it, is ultimately a reflection of mankind. They grow tired, they grow hungry, they're thirsty, they sin, they have appetites for pleasure, they do whatever it is they want, and they do it all in unrighteousness. There might be aspects in which they do what we should do as man, but ultimately they are just as fallen and depraved and debauched as every bit of mankind. They literally embody mankind because they're made after man's own image. But God is not like man. He's not in need He's not given to passions and outbursts like these pagan gods, but at the heart of it is this reality that God is completely satisfied in and of himself. he doesn't need food, he doesn't need drink, he doesn't grow tired or change his mind ultimately in the grand scheme of things he's not led by his emotions like mankind is he's utterly unchanging in every single one of his ways, and he is utterly unlike mankind he's In other words, unlike you and I. But these guys have come before God as if they can actually bring something to the table, as if he is in need. They're going to, quote unquote, fill up what's lacking in their God. And he just flips the tables on them completely, right? Everything they bring to his is already his. If he had need, they wouldn't be the last to know. They would never ultimately find out because he doesn't need to tell them, but he doesn't need anything to begin with. He is utterly self-sufficient and self-satisfied. And there is nothing in all of creation that can bring something to God to meet his needs, for he has none. He is not like us, and that is ultimately the point here. They come before God as if he is like them. And that's the problem. What they need to recognize is that they are the ones who are in need continually. Right? This God doesn't need them. They need him. The sacrifices are not for God. In other words, the sacrifices are for them. The whole covenant is not for God, ultimately. The covenant is for them. They stand as beneficiaries in every single meaningful way because this God who is the God of all justice has rightly come in and showered them with grace and he is upholding everything for their benefit. But they've fallen into the trap of believing the same old lie that many, many one of us do. And what I mean by that is quite simple. is The reality is that none of what God does for us is ultimately about us. None of what God does for us shows us that he needs us. Beloved, that's incredibly important. He didn't save sinners because he somehow needs more company in heaven. He's not lonely. He's perfectly satisfied between the relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He doesn't ultimately need us. Now, he is satisfied to bring us into his presence in heaven. That's all the benefit we enjoy. But he also doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our time, our talents, our service. He doesn't need mine. In theory, I think every one of you here would, would say that this is true, right? I think in theory, every one of us would say, God doesn't ultimately need me, right? I'm not all that special. But think of how easily we can just fall into this. Uh, Think of when somebody famous expresses faith in Christ. What does the Christian world do? Well, we think, aha, now all of a sudden this guy with all of his power and influence and money and everything else, this guy can really be effective for the kingdom, right? We just immediately assume that God needs to use that man in order to do his work. Now, you and I do it when we think if I had more money or if I had more time or influence or Um, I could be better with my words, that I would be more effective for the kingdom. We do it when we witness, when we think, if I was just better at arguing, or if I were able to recall scripture from memory super easily, then I would be able to convince this guy of their need for Christ. All the while, what, what are we doing? But we're forgetting that God is the very one who is effectively always working through his spirit to accomplish what he desires, but well, what we do is we put ourselves in the, in that driver's seat, if you will, where we think that somehow because of us, we're going to accomplish it. We forget that through the word of God and the spirit of God, that God does his work and that we are merely beneficiaries in that process. We get to enjoy being part of it. That's my point, right? We We get to enjoy being part of his work. But we also do it when we think any part of the Christian life and When we take that and we treat it as if it's anything other than pure, undeserved mercy and grace, here's what I mean by that. When we approach any aspect of the Christian faith, literally any aspect of it, and we don't do so with a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving, what we've already done is assumed simply by default, we've presumed by default that it is something other than grace We've fallen into the trap of worshiping him improperly because we've elevated our own self-importance and diminished the very glory of God. The reality is that, and this is where we get all mixed up is that, is that we are always in need of God for literally every waking moment of our existence. Every breath that you and I draw in is mercy. Every step you take is grace. Every second you live is but another second given by the loving hand of your Father who provides but we are so naturally predisposed to forget this. And we don't even try to do it. We just simply walk about our normal lives and live like functional pagans. And that's all the Israelites did here. That's all they did. They still obeyed the law. They still offered their sacrifices dutifully. But they did not do so from a heart of worship and thanksgiving. And so ultimately what it was, was hollow obedience. But notice how incredible God just simply is to them, right? They've, they've come before the living God, the righteous judge of all the earth, and he doesn't just kill them on the spot like he easily could, right? He could smite them without any issue and he would be perfectly just to do it. All of creation would even affirm God was right. And yet what God does is gracefully come alongside and rebuke them he corrects their understanding. He says, you perceive of me improperly. You come before me improperly. But here's how you need to come before me. Right? He corrects their theology, in other words. And then he says, in light of this, still make your offerings. Still come before me with your vows. Still obey the law, but do so correctly. It's, it's a grace-filled warning here. And we see this in 14 and 15. right? He still says, Offer to God a sacrifice, but of what kind? Of thanksgiving, and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. Right? And In these two verses, all he's indicating here is that we simply come before God with a recognition that we are in a position of need, and that we ought to just simply be filled with thanksgiving and gratitude for all that God does. That's the reality here. He's saying come before me still come offer your thanks your your vows and sacrifices but do so with a heart of thanksgiving call upon me in your day of trouble right when you have need i will save you and then you will honor me now the sacrifice he speaks to here is what the law would call a thank offering they would come to the altar they would publicly acknowledge that god had delivered them that he had either forgiven their sin or he had answered their prayers in some way shape or form and in other words, it's just pure thanksgiving. It's pure worship and praise before him. Even with their sin offerings, if they would come with these, the reality is that they had to acknowledge that God is the one that is meeting their need and forgiving their sins. It was never intended to be a bargaining tool or a functional tit for tap type of relationship with all this. In other words, it was all a reflection of God's grace to them. And so every bit of their offering of these sacrifices and their honoring of their vows is all done in reflection of the fact that God has gracefully given these things to do that they might have a right relationship with him, right? When they honored their vows, the same thing is in mind here. And in 15, he just shows that this cycle of praise, if you will, continues from one to the next, right? They, they call upon the Lord in their time of need and he would be gracious and save them. That's all part of the covenant. And then ultimately what they would do then is then turn and give him more and more praise and thanksgiving, in every aspect, what he's doing here is showing that their, their offerings, their vows, their praise, all of it is this continued reflection of God's grace in their lives. Every bit of it was grace, in other words. Their proper response to God was not that they could come before him and somehow meet his needs, but rather that he met all of their needs and that these offerings, these sacrifices, the vows, all of it was just a reflection that God has already done this or that through these means God would do it. Right? They must come before him with thanksgiving and trust and faith that he is doing what he says he is doing. And that's at the heart of a true biblical worship. Right? We have nothing to offer God. And so in light of that reality, we must, by faith, embrace that God has accomplished what he says he's accomplished. We must trust in the means that he has given us, but we must explode with gratitude and thanksgiving because when you realize the truth of it, you love that reality. You, you recognize God has done literally every bit of it, that there's not in any aspect or shape or form something that we have brought to the table, but that in God's grace, he has come to us. He has met our need Think of this in light of salvation. We haven't earned salvation. We simply can't. We can't keep our salvation. And even day by day, God sanctifies us. In every single way, shape, or form, God is the one who is working in us by his grace to keep us in the faith and preserve us to the very end of it. It's all of grace, in other words. Every single aspect of it is grace, and yet we still twist it and think that in some way we've contributed to our salvation the reality is that even the very best that you and I have ever done is simply because of the grace of God. God has given us grace. God has given us the means. God has given us the tools. He's given us the ability. He's given us every single thing we need in order to do what we need to do. And he simply calls us to walk in obedience and faith. In all of it, what God is doing to the Israelites, what he's saying to them is just, You have a particular enjoyment of being my people. The benefit is all on your end. You can live in light of the covenant that I have made with you. In fact, you're called to live in light of that covenant. But you have forgotten that it's all my grace. The point is that they came to God with their offerings and sacrifices as if they were fulfilling his need rather than recognizing that God has given them every bit of grace and mercy that they need. They've rejected, in other words, God's grace and mercy in this time because they're coming with this hollow form of worship and saying, God, you need me. They were the ones dependent on him for everything, though. Every sacrifice they were to make was with the singular goal of thanksgiving and praise in mind. In other words, God's not all that concerned for them That. Be, and in one sense, because they're, they're coming before him with all these offerings, but he's saying, look, you might dutifully obey the law, but your heart is radically far from me. In other words, they have this external religiosity, and the reality is that we can fall prey to the same exact things. When we look at the Christian life and we examine how we are to be in obedience to God in, what, in light of what the Scriptures call us to, we have to recognize that every single aspect of it is flowing from this reality we call grace. When we give our money, we give with a recognition that God has blessed us. Right? God has richly blessed us, and so we give with liberality. When we serve, we do so with a recognition that God has simply given us the benefit of being able to serve, for one, but for two, that God has uniquely given us talents in these ways. In every aspect, we're just simply reflecting the gifts that God has given us, but we do so for the edification of his body. When we share the gospel, why do we share the gospel, beloved? Christ saved us. It's all a reflection of what God has already done, and we are going out in obedience and faith, in recognition of the fact that he has lavished his grace upon us. And if we truly grasp that reality, there is no world in which we can look at it and say, how can I withhold that from those who need it most? In every aspect, when we participate in the life that God has given us, it is a reflection of enjoying the benefits that he has already given. Right There is every bit of obedience called into this, but every bit of the Christian life and, and truthfully proper worship is to be done out of a reflection of God's grace, out of a reflection of what God has done. When we fail to recognize that grace informs every aspect of our life and service and our deeds, we are ultimately embodying the same empty formalism or empty worship that the Israelites are being charged with here. Our motivations are askew, in other words. We might have the external appearance of righteousness and good deeds, but they are not done out of a reflection of grace. They're not done out of a reflection of us needing God in the midst of it. Rather, we think that somehow we're bringing something to the table, that we fill up what God is lacking in. Well, that's the second characteristic of a reality we just simply must affirm. We don't, in other words, rather, God doesn't need us. We need God, right? The first was that we recognize God is the righteous judge of all the earth. The second is that we must acknowledge our total dependence on him, And a third, which we now see in verses 16 through 22, is that we must live with a complete devotion to God and his word. Now the people are going to be charged with a flagrant hypocrisy here. The point of this section is to simply show that an improper understanding of who God is, which is what we first saw, and a hollow form of worship, which is what we just saw, will naturally lead to a rejection of God and his ways. And it will do so in the way one lives. In other words, every one of these aspects are related. Now, the first reason they're charged with hypocrisy here is ultimately they despise God's word. Verses 16 and 17. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. And notice how the rhetorical question here is framed, right? Right? These are people who claim to be the children of God, members of the covenant, if you will. They speak of God's word and his promises, but ultimately what they do is they lead a double life. Well, God sees right past the charade. In other words, he knows. He has no question about it. He knows their hearts are far from him. They may come with sacrifices in plenty. They may be like the Pharisees whom Jesus rejected. And he ultimately would say to them, you dutifully tie the tenth of your spices. You come with your dill and mint and cumin, and yet you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, the practice of justice and mercy and faithfulness. In other words, you might come with the external trappings of religion, but you have yet to actually obey the heart of Scripture. And of Christ, Christ, of course, pronounces woe upon them, Right? He says, Woe to you who clean the outside of the cup, but inside are filled with greed and self indulgence. Woe to you, hypocrites. Woe to you, whitewashed tombs who on the outside look beautiful and pristine, but inwardly are dead men's bones. Woe to you who reject and kill the very prophets I send to correct you, and yet you make a public display of veneration and honor to the men you will kill. That's the same thing in mind here. These are men who offer their sacrifices dutifully. They take the words of the covenant upon their mouth. They say, we are children of Abraham. And this is an indictment. Now you can see how easily this would apply to us if you would frame it maybe like this. Woe to you who stands and reviles the evils and sexual perversions of our day and yet privately you indulge in every form of sexual temptation and lust and pornography. Woe to you who decries the wicked, who says that they are filled with malice and bitterness and envy and strife, and yet inwardly you despise your brother. You reject my word. To the hypocrite, God says, you have no right to take up my words. You have no right to take up my promises. Why? For you despise correction, and you cast my words behind you. It is ultimately a rejection of the word. That's what Israel is guilty of here. That's what's informing their false worship. They fell into the trap that so many do today where they don't personalize it or they don't apply it, rather. They don't take the harsh bits of Scripture and look at it and say, in light of this, I'm over here rather than here. They might take the promises of God. They might take the covenantal aspects of it and say, we're Israel. God loves us. On the day of judgment, it will be favorable for us because God is our God. And yet when it comes to the discipline and instruction of the Lord, what do they do? He just says they cast it behind them. Literally, they toss it like refuse. It is, to put it bluntly, a full-fledged hypocrisy when you say you accept the Scriptures or you accept the Word of God, but you don't reject what you do not like about it. Scripture cuts us all. I mean, if you've read it for any length of time, you know that just as well as I do, where there's plenty of times where you're reading, especially if you're going through like the book of Proverbs, and you feel about this big, right? But those are vital, vital moments. There's no neutral ground, in other words, in which we can approach this word of God. We either accept it whole or we reject it whole. And if you reject it, God says you hate it. That's what he's indicting them here for. They hate God's word. That's what the text simply says. And the result is quite clear. A hatred of God's word naturally follows or naturally leads to a life that is filled with all forms of evil and the approval of, of evil. Right? That's what these guys are guilty of. Notice how this hypocrisy, this hatred of the word bleeds over into their life. They not only despise God's word in verses, you know, 16 and 17, but in 18 through 20 he shows that they despise God's ways ultimately. So look with me at verse 18, he says when you see a thief you are pleased with him and you associate with adulterers and he doesn't mean in any kind of a good way like Christ did. Right, he's saying, you fit right in with them. You're cut from the same cloth. You let your mouth loose in evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Now, these are all people that are part of the corporate worship in Israel. They're all joined together, if you will, in service, in corporate worship. And yet he says, you are every bit of, uh, like the wicked, you are every bit like those who rebel against God and his word because ultimately you rebel against God and go against his word. They're guilty of delighting in evil, right? They craft elaborate lies, they slander their own brother and more. Even though they're among the people of God, he says you're, you're guilty of these gross violations of the covenant, right? These are all commands in the, in the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue, but they can be summed up just as easily by looking at the first and second greatest commandments, that they do not love the Lord with all their heart, mind, and soul, and they do not love their neighbor as themselves. They do the same thing that Paul speaks of in Romans 1 and 2, right? They, they know what is true and right, and yet they not only do the deeds they know will bring death, they affirm everyone else who does them. Now, we tend to distance ourselves from texts like these because they confront us, but any time... You and I seek after a willful sin, or we treat socially acceptable sins one way, as if they're not all that serious. We're doing the exact same thing, beloved. Moment by moment, choice by choice, we are faced with two options, ultimately. I mean, this is a simplistic simplistic way of putting it, but we are faced with two options. We obey the word, or we don't. And I can tell you as a pastor that the majority of the ways that we all do this is not in high-handed, open, flagrant rebellion. What I mean by that is that 99.9% of you and me, we won't go out and we won't commit murder. We won't just go right headfirst into an affair. We won't go into a store and steal or rob our neighbors by gunpoint. But what we will do is that we will entertain all sorts of bitterness and envy in our hearts against our neighbor and commit murder in our hearts. What we will do is lust and commit adultery in our hearts. What we will do is covet, right? We have a whole list of socially acceptable sins, what Jerry Bridges would call the respectable sins. They're not the obvious sins that are apparent to everyone, but they are the more private and pernicious sins that we can indulge in without drawing much attention to. And beloved, hear me on this. These are the sins that will master you if you let them. These are the ones that nobody knows about, right? We have, we have our obvious sins that we look at and we'll say, I'll fight this with every bit of my strength. I'll, I'll put this one to death. But the one over here, not that one. That one we're going to coddle affectionately. That one we're going to pretend as if it's really not that big of a deal. In that moment, all we're guilty of is taking up the very word of God because we know what's right. We proclaim it. We call others to obey it. And yet behind closed doors, we discard it. We say, These are rules for thee, but not for me. It's so, so easy, isn't it? It's so easy to fall into hypocrisy. And all we must do is presume. We must presume upon God's grace or we presume upon his silence, we presume upon having more time to put it to death. We think that all the while, just because life is pretty much okay, that God is pleased. We won't have to face an account on the day of judgment because we're safe in Christ. And beloved, you are. But we know, every one of us knows that we will be judged still. We will suffer loss or gain reward. And a very large part of that is what we bring to the table. And what I mean by that is not that, again, you're going to somehow gain entrance to heaven by your obedience, but the reality is that we will suffer loss of some sort and we will gain reward of some sort based on what we love and what we worship and how we obey. But we presume. Notice what the psalmist says in verses 21 through 22. He says, these things have you done. And he's talking about the preceding context, right? They have delighted in evil. These things have you done, and I kept silence. And you thought that I was just like you. Not so. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. I'm going to lay it all out. The implication here is that they've somehow convinced themselves, God is not all that angry with me. He hasn't confronted me about my sin. He's kept silent. Therefore, it's not that big of a deal. What they did is they confused God's patience with his permission. And so they kept on sinning. But notice the root of the issue here. Again, it's they don't understand who this God is. Their poor grasp of who God is led them to believe that he was just like them. They believed their sins, their worship, their thoughts of God, everything was appropriate to bring before him in worship because he had not acted yet. He had been silent, in other words. They believed he was like them, that he thought light light thoughts of their sin and even lighter thoughts of their double-mindedness, their empty, hollow offerings, But the reality is that he is not like them. He is not a man. The ultimate problem is that they did not align their lives, their worship, their love around the God who revealed himself to be the God of justice, God of the covenant, the God who is righteous. But they did not align themselves to what he required of them. They did not take the covenant warnings seriously. They took the promises seriously, right? They looked at that and they said, this is great. But all those promises in Deuteronomy 28 and following of those curses that were brought for disobedience, they looked at that and said, not yet. God won't do that. We're not not those people. They believed God wasn't all that concerned with their worship. But he says, not so. God is very much concerned that people worship him properly. He desires worshipers. But the reality is that not just any worship will do. And he makes this case very, very clearly in verse 22. Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces. I'll tear you in pieces. And there will be none to deliver. <sighs> That is the harshest rebuke you can get. The promise is fierce judgment. If they fail to repent, and nothing will bring them hope if they fail. Nothing will bring them salvation if they forget their God. And what he means by forgetting God is not that this, they've literally forgotten him, but they've, they've ignored the warnings and the pleas and the cries of judgment to come, and they've neglected to put into practice what they already know to be true. In other words, he says, when you live without any reference to God, when you live as a functional pagan, if you will, when you reject his word, when you live as if you do not know God, what happens is that I will judge you. You're no different than the rest of the unbelieving world, as the unbelieving world faces judgment. They don't acknowledge God as the righteous judge of all the earth. They don't live as if they need God or they're dependent on him for anything. They don't devote themselves to God and his words. And he says, if you are this person, if you're this person, you are under the crosshairs of God's judgment. If you remain here, the promise is sure, he says. The fierce, consuming fire that is the God of justice will devour you. He will consume you. And amazingly, he doesn't stop there. Amazingly, he still gives the call to repentance. He still says, return to a true worship of your creator. Look with me now at verse 23. This is the final characteristic of genuine worship here. It's a final call of grace. He says, he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. It's a certainty. First, they're, they're called to remember who God is and what God has done. They're turn, they are to turn their hearts in proper praise and worship of this God. No longer can they offer empty ritualistic sacrifices as if God is dependent upon them. They must recognize they are the ones in need of him forever. They must offer them in thanksgiving. They must remember the sacrificial system, the covenant, every bit of it is a means of God's grace. He has provided them the way in which they can be made right with God. But he's also provided them the tools. It's only through thanksgiving that proper honor and worship of God will be found, he says. Secondly, he says, they must order their way aright. Now, what is meant by this is that the path any man is on must reflect the path that God has laid out in his word for him. In other words, there is a path that leads to salvation. This man's life, his conduct, his loves, his desires, everything about that man must align with that path that God says will end in salvation. Everything must align with God's standard. He is the righteous judge. This is the path that you must be on. He must fix his course so that he does not turn to the left or to the right. In other words, he must have a singular focus and determination to persevere to the very end. The New Testament speaks of the same reality in multiple areas, but I want to just draw your attention briefly to two. You don't need to flip, but just listen. Right. Christ commands his disciples and us in Matthew 7, he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads where? To destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, the Greek word for narrow here, it doesn't just imply that this is a road that fewer take. I mean, that's very, very plain to the text. But the reality is that this road is the more difficult road to take. But he says it is the only road that leads to life. The Christian life, or rather the life of proper worship, is indeed the narrow road, but it is a difficult road. And anyone who tells you otherwise is lying to you, and otherwise is trying to sell you something. It will cost you a great deal to follow Christ. It will demand everything of you. But he says, those who remain on this road will see the salvation of the Lord. Same thing our psalmist is speaking of here, right? Those who love God, those who endure to the end will live. Those who set their sights upon the salvation of the Lord and follow that all the days of their life will see the salvation of the Lord. The second text, and this is the one that I just want to briefly mention again, is from the Apostle Paul. Matt spoke about this last week very briefly. Right, Paul is writing to his faithful companion, Timothy, he's charging and preached the word. He calls him to be a faithful in a time where everybody is dropping like flies. People are heaping up those who would satisfy their itching ears. In other words, every place around him is showing those who are committing apostasy or those who are teaching falsely. It's a time where false worship is everywhere. And Paul recognizes that his part to play in this war is done. He's about to die. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And he's reiterating the same basic thing. He's come to the end of his course. He's proven faithful to the very end, and what awaits him is the salvation of the Lord. His life, we know this of Paul, his life was not his own. He dutifully recognized this. He lived with a singular focus on a proper worship of God. He faithfully taught and preached and bled for the sake of the gospel. He ordered his life under the authority of the word. And he looks at Timothy and says, I'm about to die. Take up the mantle. This is now your call, Timothy. This is now your duty, Timothy. And ultimately, it's the duty that you and I share. All throughout the psalm, the charge is that we order our lives in a proper worship of this God who is, because the promise is sure. Those who order their lives all right under the authority of the word of God and under the grace of God will see the salvation of the Lord. Everything comes down to worship. Everything. Everything we do is a reflection of what, or rather who, we worship. We Christians have a duty to proclaim this God who is, who we are in light of who this God is, and what God requires of every man, but we also have a duty to order our lives in submission to every single word that God has given us in the Scriptures. In a word, all of life is worship. And God requires worship but not just any worship will do. We must order our way aright. And the only way we can do this is by submitting ourselves to what God has said. Now, if you're here today and you've found yourself described in this psalm in some way, whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, the beautiful reality is that Asaph describes the remedy the way that we do this, or that the way that we return to a proper worship is the same. First, he says, recognize who God is. God is the righteous judge of all the earth and there will be none who can open their mouth and complain against his judgments. What he declares is true, good, and right, all will recognize as true, good, and right, especially on that final day. So he says, embrace God essentially for who he is He will never be anything else than what he is. Secondly, recognize who you are in light of who God is. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. We are the ones that need him. It will never be the other way around. But that is an incredibly comforting truth because there is nothing in all of creation we can bring to the table that will secure God's love for us the only thing that will secure God's love for us is God himself. And we are called to participate in that blessing. And that should fill you with much thanksgiving because it is all of grace. Thirdly, recognize what God has declared in his word is true whether or not we believe it. And in light of that, we're still required to obey it whether or not we want to. We are required to turn in repentance and faith to Christ. We are required to order our life in submission to the teaching of the scriptures, but we are also required to love God. God can sniff out half-hearted worship and hypocrisy from a mile away, even if no one else can. Finally, recognize the path of salvation is indeed a path we must persevere on. For some of you, you've not yet walked on this path. What I mean by that is you don't believe. And you need to walk on this path for the very first time. You need to approach the righteous judge and agree with what he has declared in his word and then cast yourself on his mercy. You can fight it, you can reject it, you can pretend it isn't real. None of that changes who God is. We must order our way aright. And for others of you, you've professed Christ and yet you've turned to the left or to the right because something has captivated you other than your God. But a pure worship of God dictates that the way we stay upon the narrow path, which leads to life, is that we, again, order our way aright. In other words, the call is to return once more to your first love, to embrace a pure form of worship to worship God in spirit and in truth, which simply means, again, that we set our eyes on Christ. He is the author and the finisher of our faith, and we must run the race with much endurance, but we must ultimately run that race in faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have so clearly laid it out in your word what you desire of us, We are not a people who are left in the dark. We are not left to scramble and wondering what pleases you. And ultimately, you have set your affection on us in Christ if we trust in him. And so I pray that for those who do not trust Christ yet, that you would open up their hearts and their minds. You would open their eyes and their ears to see that he is the Savior, that none shall come to find life except through him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. I pray for those who do trust in Christ that you would forevermore remind them of your grace and your mercy, that you would continue to put us upon uh, a a mindset that just simply embraces the reality that you've washed us clean, that you have separated us from our sin. You have given us a new nature and new loves, new desires, and you have implanted your spirit in us that you will not fail us. But I pray that we would run that race with endurance You would give us the strength to carry our course forward, trusting every step along the way that Christ is ours and that we are his. I thank you for this body. It is a privilege to know them. It is a privilege to be able to preach your word for them. I pray that whatever days that you have given us, that we would all with a singular focus look to glorify our God. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.